Hey everyone, thanks for joining us today. We've got a special intro um, for you today. It's by David Rovix, our uh, guest. It's St. Patrick's Battalion. Please enjoy. My name is John Riley. I'll have your ear only a while. I left my dear home in Ireland. It was death, starvation, or exile. When I got to America, it was my duty to go. Enter the army and slog across Texas to join in the war against Mexico. And it was there in the pueblos and hillsides that I saw the mistake I had made. Part of a conquering army with the morals of a bayonet blade. And there amidst all these poor dying Catholics, screaming children, the burning stench of it all, myself and two hundred Irishmen decided to rise to the call. From Dublin City to San Diego, we witnessed freedom denied. So we formed the St. Patrick Battalion, and we fought on the Mexican side. We formed the St. Patrick Battalion, we fought on the Mexican side. We marched neath the green flag of St. Patrick, emblazoned with Erin Golbra. Bright with the harp and the shamrock, and the Veritat Padre Republica. Just fifty years after Wolftone, five thousand miles away, the Yanks called us a legion of strangers, and they can talk as they may. But from Dublin City to San Diego, we witnessed freedom denied. So we formed the St. Patrick Battalion, and we fought on the Mexican side. We formed the St. Patrick Battalion, and we fought on the Mexican side. Churubusco was the last Overwhelmed by the cannons from Boston We fell after each mortar blast Most of us died on that hillside In the service of the Mexican state So far from our occupied homeland We were heroes and victims of fate From Dublin City to San Diego We witnessed freedom denied so we formed the St. Patrick Battalion And we fought on the Mexican side From Dublin City to San Diego We witnessed freedom denied So we formed the St. Patrick Battalion And we fought on the Mexican side We formed the St. Patrick Battalion And we fought on the Mexican side Howdy, folks. This is David Cobb. I am the redneck gone green, and I am boohooing. I knew this was going to happen. I've told David Rovix before. Every This is my favorite song that he does. Every time I hear it, I cry. I can sing along with it. I know exactly what's coming, and it just fills me with such emotion and pride in knowing as a descendant of both Scottish and Irish people who fought against that hateful English empire and I hate the English Empire, not English people, but the English Empire, because there are so many stories of resistance, so many stories of us coming together and fighting back. 
And David Rovix tells the story as a musician as well as I've heard anybody do it. This is Redneck Gone Green. I'm your host, David Cobb. I am a redneck, and you bet I've gone green, and I'm trying to convince you to do it too. Remember, this is a weekly podcast where we ask ourselves, what is to be done? This is not a conversation where I try to convince you that it's awful because fascism is rising. The predatory class uh, are absolutely uh, destroying the planet. Like, I don't think that I'm going to try to convince anybody that that is happening. The question is, what should we do? Every week, uh, we convene together to ask ourselves, what is to be done, specifically looking at people who are doing it, and what can we learn from it? That's why I'm so excited to bring David Rovix into this conversation. And before I do, I'm going to play you another song. And in the spirit of critique and self-critique, I'm going to share with you, in the 90s, y'all, I don't think, like, I went to a lot of global justice protests. And I don't think I went to a single one where this dude was not playing. If there was music to be had, David Rovix was on that stage. And he was singing. He was getting sing-alongs going. He was chanting. Uh, he is a theorist. He is an organizer. He's a musician and a songwriter. But here's the thing. I was in my late 20s, early 30s when I heard the song we're about to hear. It's called Henry Ford Was a Fascist. The first time I heard it, I was like, wait, what? Because I didn't know. Because guess what? I don't know what I don't know. And neither do you. So I want to play this song. And I want you to listen and pay attention to the lyrics. Because the first time I heard it, it literally said, wait a minute. Is that really true? And it forced me or inspired me to go back and do some research and learn. The point is, David Rovix uses songs to inspire but also to do political education about what our history has been and what our future could be. Jack Rabbit, hit us with Henry Ford was a fascist. Ford built tanks for the Nazis and the Nazis used those tanks to gun down lots of soldiers in the U.S. Army ranks. Yes, Henry Ford was a fascist and a nasty one was he. He built tanks for anyone for the proper fee. Henry Ford spoke to his lackeys and he said, isn't this great? We'll attack our enemies and we'll retaliate. Yes, Henry Ford was a fascist and a cunning liar too. A brown shirt with a swastika draped in red, white, and blue. Henry Ford spoke to his workers and he said, you dare not strike. You must be patriotic and take on my third Reich. Yes, Henry Ford was a fascist and he had not a care about the dying soldiers that made him a billionaire. Ford built tanks for the Nazis and he built many more to gun down lots of peasants in Peru and Salvador. Yes, Henry Ford was a fascist, I heard that when he died. The last words to leave his lips was Arbeit macht frei. Yes, the dollar was his icon on whichever shore. And Henry's only motto was make money and make war. Yes, Henry Ford was a fascist. That's all I have to say. I will spit on Henry's rotting grave until my dying day. Yes, Henry Ford was a fascist. That's all I have to say. I will spit on Henry's rotting grave until my dying day. 
That was David Robix. Henry Ford was a fascist. And there's the man himself. For those of you who are watching us on YouTube or uh, on uh, Rumble, uh, David Robix, welcome to Redneck Gone Green. Thank you, David Cobb. It's so great to see you be on your show. I'm so glad you're doing a show. We need you. Well, we need you too, and we need more art and music. We need more outrage, but we also need more humor, right? Uh, and so I want to bring you into this conversation because, again, like, look, y'all, if you don't know who David Rovix is, then go to davidrovix.org. Uh, like, he, like, look, dot com. Yeah. Dot com. Thank you. Here's the thing, mm -hmm. y'all. No less than Amy Goodman says, David Rovix is the democracy now. Uh, of the musical world the, the musical ver the musical version of democracy now i was so so tickled when she gave me that quote i asked her for a quote and then she gave me one that was far better than i could have hoped for back in 2001 yeah and it's true and somebody else uh said Robix, uh that if phil oaks was to return that they would say oh he's the next generation's david Rovix." so like you've you've made an impression and you're 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 actually kind of a unicorn because you're making a living as a leftist folk singing artist like that's really hard to do it is actually i i would have to agree it is hard to make a living at this and uh and i've actually had to basically reinvent my whole method of making a living multiple times since the 90s in order to continue to make a living, which is why, of course, most artists are not making a living, or if they were, they're not anymore. And it's very much a declining state of affairs for the arts generally, you know, but, but including the performing arts. What I would say is this. I think the ability to produce and experience art is the human need, right? And what art is a very good question because the, the predatory class work very hard to strip art of anything liberatory. They strip art of anything uh, that is outside of the commodification and glorification of materialism and consumerism. I mean, a perfect example of that is hip hop, right? And uh, I did some uh, organizing with a dear friend, Shamako Noble, uh, the founder of Hip Hop Congress. Uh, and we did a, a series called What the Bleep Happened to Hip Hop. And the answer, what the bleep happened to hip hop, the corporate commodification of what began as a liberatory art form is what happened to hip hop. And I could actually say, oh, and you know what? What the bleep happened to country music? The corporate commodification of what began as hillbilly liberatory music is what happened to country music. So the point is that the, uh, the overlords, the, the predatory class, have really perfected the ability to take art and culture, strip it from anything that assists us in consciousness and making genuine connection in a political way, and instead just feeds us back the bling bling and the boom boom uh, and sort of the vacuousness of it all. It's like uh, taking all the nutrition out of food and then just feeding us, uh, you know, sugar and uh uh, you know, uh, fast food nastiness. So, Z Manny, that's is the point. The to me, the human need I'm talking about is the need to connect through art, uh, the need to create art, uh, the need to experience art. And the the corporate media has done an incredible job of commodifying that. 
and just strip it away. And here, by the way, redneck that I am, 60-year-old redneck, I got a hip-hop joke for you. And I made this one up myself. Are y'all ready? Here's the joke. It's a setup. What did they used to call conscious hip-hop? Answer? Hip-hop. Right? Hip-hop always used to be conscious. Like, that was literally the whole fucking point of it. And now it is a small subgenre, and most hip-hop, bluntly, is pretty misogynistic. It's pretty materialistic and consumeristic, right? But for old hip-hop heads, and I am not one of them, right? Uh, I came to know this and learn about this. So that's my hip-hop joke. David Robix, I'm going to try one more time. Are you with us now? I seem to be. <clears throat> I don't know. We were, hell, it was man. all working fine before the broadcast started. That was a hell of a thing, wasn't it? So, uh, so look, let's circle back, man, uh, and and bring you into the conversation uh, because I do want, like, I've I've been ranting about uh, the corporate commodification of uh, art and culture and how we're shifting from uh, late stage capitalism to end stage capitalism, right? But I, I want to actually set you up for, because you're a theorist as well as an organizer and an artist. And I thought your recent essay in, uh, on Substack was friggin' brilliant. And I'm just going to say, tell us about what was happening in 1921 and the two compare and contrast that you look at to challenge us to think through lessons. So I'm going to turn it over to you. Sure. Let's see. Let's see when when the uh, whoever's uh, interfering with the broadcast. No, no, that would be paranoid for me to suspect anything like that. But uh, <clears throat> let's see if they're going to let me talk for a minute. Um, so in uh, 1921, uh, in the space of the same few months, uh, very different uh, events took place uh, in the same country. Uh, involving a lot of the same sorts of people undergoing the same sorts of economic and social and political conditions. But there were notable differences in uh, the events that took place. Uh, two of the most notable events that took place that year were very notably different. And one is an event that we've been hearing about a lot, um, uh, at least on the 100th anniversary in particular. We were hearing about it a lot on NPR and elsewhere, and the other event that we were not hearing about a lot. Uh, but uh, one uh, the one event we were hearing a lot about was the uh, terrible uh, racist massacre in Tulsa, Oklahoma, in the Greenwood neighborhood. Uh, killed hundreds and made thousands homeless and destroyed an entire neighborhood. And um, the one that we don't hear about is the uh, multiracial armed uprising in West Virginia, which was the culmination of the coal mine wars that went down in history as the Battle of Blair Mountain. And uh, that uh, is the thing we don't hear about, but they both happened at the same, you know, in the same country during the same few months. And um, and uh, it's, um, it's, it, it's very notable, and it's also notable that in Oklahoma, the political atmosphere of radicalism that had been very much a part of the history of that whole... Uh, part of the world uh, for, for a long time uh, was uh, was repressed uh, fairly successfully uh, after the uh, after the Green Corn Rebellion was put down in 1917 
And uh, whereas in West Virginia, you had a vibrant union movement, um, you know, led by the United Mine Workers of America, and, and um, which involved uh, really uh, conscious, uh, uh, consciously anti-racist and uh, otherwise inclusive union organizing going on uh, throughout the state of West Virginia. And that's where the uh, multiracial armed uprising took place rather than the racist massacre. And um, I... Uh, postulate in that essay that there you know this may not be a coincidence and and that it's a good example uh, to take out of history um to understand um just uh, like how how people react to different historical circumstances so differently and of course if the circumstances that we're living in are even more radically different than the circumstances were between Oklahoma and West Virginia uh you know things can go uh, even more radically different uh, directions. And um, this uh, this essay was basically in response to somebody talking about um, how we could have dealt with uh, the uh, um, un the Confederate, the, end, the Reconstruction, how Reconstruction could have gone uh, better and how denazification in Germany could have gone better. And their suggestion was that we needed to kill more uh, former Confederates and former Nazis. And my um, suggestion is that we need to create circumstances that don't give rise to fascists being popular in the first place, which is to, which means creating a, a stable, prosperous, well-governed society with lots of unions and cooperatives in it, uh, which are the societies that tend not to be particularly vulnerable to fascist movements uh, becoming popular. So I'm going to jump in because I think that to me, like that is the, the kernel and the essence, right? Like how to best defeat fascism. And, you know, I want to be clear, like, you know, if it comes to the, the punch, punch a Nazi or not, like I'm a punch a Nazi kind of uh, kind of fellow. Like we had a world war uh, about that. But but that's when they're already Nazis. Right. Like <laughs> I, I want to be crystal clear here, y'all. Like, I am convinced, and I'm not usually a binary person, right? I think that things are much more complicated and much more complex. But here is the big picture. Fascism is rising now for the same reason that it rose in the 1930s. Here's my point. Yes. In the 1930s, fascism was rising because the entire political economy was being restructured, shifting from an agrarian society to an industrial one. And most ordinary people didn't understand it, like what the hell is happening, but they did know their way of life was being threatened, uh, that, they, that, that, that they did not see a place for themselves in this world. And the fascists, see, fascism is not merely jackbooted thugs and totalitarians, right? Fascism is a political economy based on hyper-nationalism, creating an us and a them, and the us is always nationalistic, uh, and that them are always the other. Uh, in this country, it's always white. It's always uh, uh, Christian nationalism. But in Africa, you've got black-skinned Nazis. Uh, in Brazil, you've got brown-skinned Nazis. In India, you've got brown-skinned Nazis. So make no mistake about it. It's whoever the us is. That's what fascism is, how to organize the political economy. And the fascist, as horrific as it is, they have an answer. Oh, 
It's the other that is at fault. And if you will simply, and remember the word fasces comes from Latin, the, the bound up together, right? So you bound yourself up into the national identity so that you will be strong. And it is a appeal to nationalism. And if you do that, we got you. And we're going to, there's a place for you. And, you know, you are on the side of, of good and righteousness, right? So that's how fascism appeals is to say, oh, there's a place in that for me, right? So it arose in the 30s because society was being reorganized from agrarian to industrial. Friends, today fascism is rising as a genuine political economy because we are literally shifting from an industrial slash financial world to a laborless one with automation, technology, robotics, artificial intelligence, like whether I like it or not, whether David Rovix likes it or not, whether Donald Trump likes it or not, literally society, we're in a revolutionary moment because society is going to be reorganized. Ordinary folks feel it and they're like, well, but what, but like, ah, so what do you think, Rovix? How am I doing so far? Is this how you see? Yeah, things? absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Right. But I mean, of course, and, and the only thing about it is that there are just so many other uh, parallels that can be made between the present and the 1930s. I mean, but but the basic uh, most fundamental parallel uh, is is exactly what you're talking about. But but of course, you know what what were the reason why still uh, the kinds of changes that you're talking about are 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 having a much bigger uh, impact in places like the United States, India, and Brazil, rather than say um, Denmark, uh, Sweden, Finland, uh, Cuba. Uh, you know, it, it, there's, there's. I mean, in, in the case of the Scandinavian countries specifically, um, the reason why this is not happening is because they already have uh, societies with with really solid. Um, a, a solid basis that does not involve um, depending on the market economy for people to be prosperous. It, it's uh, and I and I'm deliberately avoiding the term welfare state because these are not welfare states. They they are societies. They're social democracies rooted in cooperatives and unions and and collect uh, co collective governance through multi party democracies that actually are democracies the way that you're, they're supposed to be like uh, where a third party can actually you know easily uh, get more and more of the vote and form a governing coalition all that kind of thing i mean it's um it's a whole different model of society than we have it is not a, a slight variation on capitalism it's a totally different model and it works much better uh and and it doesn't become people don't become fascist which is and of course, i know if there's any scandinavians listening they're they're some of them are getting kind of squirmy and they're going to want to talk about the swedish democrats and how they got 20 percent of the vote and that's all true but it also is not nearly a situation um of uh you know on destabilized uh situation where where there's a serious fascist uh, movement rising that is destabilizing society and uh, it's not happening there. So uh, here's the point, y'all. When I say I, I didn't want to be binary, the big setup, right? So there, and there are a lot of similarities, but here's the thing. I believe that the neoliberal consensus is collapsing before our eyes. This idea that market economics and quote, well-regulated capitalism is going to somehow give uh, an opportunity for all, 
I don't think it works. And it's certainly not working in this country or in Brazil or in India, right? So the point is, it is, it is making the toxic seeds of fascism are taking root and growing. And I believe that ultimately we are going to, we're heading into a condition where people are going to have to, in the words of the, of the great union standard, uh, David Rovix, which side are you on? You're, it's either going to be some version of eco-socialism or some version of fascism. Like we're going to have to have a society where we ask, what are our core principles and values and how do we want to organize that society? And if, if, if there is, oh, we're going to share, if we're going to have a basically cooperative society, that's one way to do it. And I think that capitalism is in its like end stage because of the inherent contradictions of capitalism. It can't continue, right? Again, remember, capitalism is actually easy to understand. Private ownership of the means of production you produce uh, things as commodities, not for just use, but for commodities to be bought and paid for at a profit, profit maximization, and labor itself is just one more commodity, and then you use the market uh, to, to do the whole thing. That's basically, like, go to any introduction to economics, uh, and that's what you're going to find. That's the basic definition. The problem is, it is, if you understand it, the ideology of the cancer cell, right? Like, like on a finite planet, capitalism, especially as industrial and technology is exacerbating and getting better and better at commodification, we're literally destroying Mother Earth faster than she can replenish herself, right? So we are yeah. going to have to come to terms with that existential crisis. That's the ecological limits. But friends, even if there was some technological fix, which I do not believe is possible, but even if there was some magic, right? I'm telling you that capitalism itself is coming to the end because the capitalist can no longer extract the surplus value of the labor of the worker because the worker is becoming less and less necessary, right? So this is why I'm saying we have to embrace a cooperative society where our whole job is to take care of each other and to regenerate the earth. And what I would say is this is basically the indigenous worldview. We have to re-remember what all of our ancestors once knew, and that is we're supposed to be in right relationship with each other, ourselves, and the natural world. It's not property to be commodified and exploited. Uh, it is a symbiotic relationship of life. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with every, <laughs> every word. And, so, David, and, and that, that, you know, the that's point. what we need. Huh? But yes. the court, of course, the, what, the, we're not going to get there. I mean, the, the point that I'm often making in, in these essays and many other uh, contexts is we're not going to achieve eco-socialism or any other kind of socialism uh, just by opposing fascism. And in fact, just opposing fascism is actually one of the best ways to help the fascists out. And uh, and history has demonstrated this over the past century, and uh, very eloquently. And I, I think it's it's pretty hard to um, argue with that point in my reading of history. Um, so you know, we desperately need to actually organize socialism, and and uh, and and we need to stop thinking that further polarization or becoming you know more 
uh, rabidly um, anti-fascist or pro uh, pro uh, banning people off of platforms and making sure they don't get on TV or whatever it is that people think is progressive these days. Um, this is not the way forward. Uh, you know, censorship and 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 uh, attacking free speech and uh, deplatforming people and and uh, cancellation campaigning. None of that is whether you're directing it at other leftists or at the right wingers. None of it is useful. All of it has been proven over the past century to be totally counterproductive. We need to build socialism. We don't need to uh, polarize and argue and pretend to be good anti-fascists, you know, you know, taking positions online and, you know, shouting on Facebook and Twitter. It's totally useless. I like Worse Z Manny useless. is, is a, a frequent listener uh, and commenter. Uh, Z Manny writes, I think people have a deep need for connection and meaning in their lives. In my opinion, culture is our process tied with this. Maybe the fascists are starved of this meaning and erupts through violence. What do you think, Rovix? I think um, that generally uh, one, of, one of the things that attracts uh, anybody to any kind of radical uh, solutions uh, to, to um, terrible problems is... Uh, is is uh it, groups will uh form cultures um that attract people uh to them and uh this has been done f forever by anybody calling themselves socialists communists anarchists and also fascist um fascists don't lack culture they have their own culture and and uh or they you know, take over other people's culture, whatever, you know, it doesn't matter. They have what they call culture and what other people identify as culture, you know, whether it's the folk process or theft or, you know, whatever it is, it doesn't, doesn't really matter because it, it's something that attracts people when there's culture. And that's why uh, the, that's why the, the, in the national socialists were very, um, in Germany in the thirties, were very uh, into culture and religion and mythology and history and all that stuff, you know, because it attracts people and, and it's, it's interesting and it, and, and it helps foster community. And everybody should know that about the fascists in the 30s. I mean, they, they had summer camps. They um, believed in exercise and having a good diet and uh, ch teaching children uh, how to do things like shoot and you know, play outside in all sorts of different forms. They, people got got tan and, and grew tall and ate good food. And, you know, this was all uh, fascist, part of the fascist ideology. You know, it's not unique to socialism to have summer camps and, and uh, to, to sing songs together and bond and all that stuff. It's just the kind of thing that anybody does who's trying to organize a movement. We need to realize that, you know, these are not defective people who, who just, uh, you know, can't uh, function or something. They have a lot going on, you know, culturally, you know, and this has always been the case. You know, we're, we're not we're not dealing with two dimensional people here. There aren't any. Folks, you're listening and or watching Redneck Gone Green. I'm your host, David Cobb. I am the redneck. And yes, I've gone green and I'm trying to convince you to do it as well. But I want to be clear. I engage electoral politics, but I ain't no electoral fetishist. Right. Uh, I understand elections uh, to be a tactic. And if it's part of a strategy for liberation, I'm all about it. Uh, but I also know the importance of art and culture in movement work. I know the importance of building alternatives to meet people's needs, like 
public banking and participatory budgeting and community land trust and worker-owned cooperatives. Like the point is that here on this program, we're asking ourselves, what is to be done? And in this particular conversation, we're speaking with David Rovix. David Rovix is a singer, a songwriter, a theorist, an organizer, uh, a, and a podcaster. You can read his stuff on Substack over at, uh, uh, what's the Substack uh, called, David? Oh, yeah. Good question. What is it? Now, I can't remember. Is it davidrovix.substack or substack? It's This Week with David Rovix, anyway. You can this Week with David Rovix. And uh, he's got a phenomenal website. He writes. He puts together a podcast. He does video. There's music there. I mean, like, the point is, David Rovix is one of those rare individuals who does art well, does storytelling well, organizes actual human beings to come together and does strategery well. And so the point that I'm making is I want to have David on to ask ourselves, how do we build that world that makes it impossible for the seeds of fascism to really take root? And your short answer is? I mean, my short answer is we, we have a, the, the, I would say the key in, in a sentence is a, a prosperous society with competent governance that is uh, characterized by a domination of society by cooperatives and unions. I mean, that, that, from my observation, those are the most stable, happy societies, uh, you know, the egalitarian ones. And those are also the most, um, you know, the ones where they raise their kids the best and, and, and the ones where they don't have a, a big problem with uh, fascism or a lot of other things that we have in this society. But And you know what's uh, interesting to me, know, David, is when, when like, in, in, like when you did in a nutshell, when I sort of challenged you, uh, give it to us in the skinny, when you did it as a storyteller, I can take that message into any pool hall or bowling alley uh, in the rural South Hell, I could go uh, anywhere in this country uh, where white folks gather together. And I do think we have to, to recognize, you know, how critical it is that you look like the people that are that are strangers to you. That's 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 reality. But I can take that message and I can have that conversation. And I don't care if people think they're more or less a Trump supporter, more or less a Bernie Sanders supporter, more or less a Biden supporter, more or less a Cornell West supporter. Like I can take that basic message of shouldn't we be cooperating? Shouldn't we have a prosperous society? Shouldn't we make sure that, uh, you know, uh, our children have a future? That's a winning message. It is so true. And it is exactly I mean, it's exactly what I keep on telling people. And it's exactly why we don't need all this uh, polarization. And, and people people a lot of people are, are afraid that they, they don't want to try to even understand why is it why is it that most of the people uh, that that when when polls were taken at the time that Bernie Sanders was a candidate uh, that most people said that if it were a race between him and Trump they'd vote for him how how is it that the same people so many of the same people who voted for Trump also voted for Bernie Sanders that's a fact and how is that the case why is that the case why are is there such crossover here and and I think. To you know, to it, it's obvious uh, to anybody who understands that once again the history of fascism. You know, and and, and I'm by no means uh, saying that everybody who voted for Trump is fascist. That's not at all the point I'm making. But the point is that 
that they both talked about the working class and that is, and they were the only two candidates who did that when we're talking talk about electoral politics in 2016 who was talking about the working class there were two of them bernie sanders and donald trump nobody and else. isn't it isn't it crazy that donald trump and the republican nominee and the republican party was doing a better job of messaging to the working class than the neoliberal democrats uh uh whether it's hillary clinton or joe biden or any of the rest of them. That's something mm -hmm. that I, like it's it, like, I don't believe that they are sincere, but their messaging around right. the aspirations and the genuine concerns and fears of the working class. Donald Trump has better messaging than Joe Biden and the neoliberals. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, it is amazing because um, I mean, it, because it, it's so sad because we could, potentially you would think have uh, uh, people much more capable of, of good messaging who are coming from a left uh, orientation but the democratic party hasn't been coming from a, any kind of a you know any semblance of a left orientation for at least my entire lifetime i mean it's at least at least since like 19 you know when i was like six years old was probably the last time the democrats you could call that group that, that party a uh, a sort of a you know, politically or economically, uh, you know, had progressive aspects to it, you know, supporting the idea of uh, organized labor and housing for everybody and that kind of thing. It hasn't supported those things for 50 years in any kind of consistent way. And and now it's in the past 10 years or so, it, it really has become like this kind of switch where, you know, both parties of the ruling class are repositioning themselves and the Democrats are like the party of intersectionality and imperialism and capitalism. And the Republicans are the party of uh, uh, white people and uh, capitalism and imperialism. You know, so we have these slight differences and they were they, they were they were slightly different in the opposite ways a century ago. You know, when the when the Democrats, uh, you know, build themselves as the party of the white man. I and mean, if you look at um you look at uh, official party propaganda from 1916. Uh, it was a, a caricature of a black man and a, you know, sort of opposite kind of caricature of a handsome white man. And it said underneath, uh, you know, vote for the party of the white man, which is the Democrats. You know, I uh, thank you, David. And I really appreciate Catherine's comment, uh, who she writes in to say, we simply need to be more attractive than any other policy. Uh, and it does remind me that as an organizer, one of the axioms that I know to be true is uh, throw a better party, right? Like, totally. uh, I mean, like if you make if you make your movement fun and uh, sexy and inspirational and you play together, uh, like people will join. You know what people don't join? People don't join internecine squabbles. Uh, people yeah. don't uh, join uh, shrill, uh, angry folk. Like, it's just, it's not how it works. So, you know, I really appreciate Catherine's point and your point it's as well, David Rovix, and that is we need to speak to ordinary people in language that they understand about how their life could be better. Totally. And we need to have a lot more parties and we need to play music and we need to hang out together and dance together and do things together. I mean, we need we need physical community. We need to gather in physical spaces. That's why it, that that actual real organizing in the real world in physical spaces is so important. 
which is why the atomization of society with the suburbanization of the society and the vast gentrification, how expensive housing is, how people have to move further and further away from each other in order to survive. All this is, you know, driving around in private cars, not seeing each other in so many ways. It's just the loneliness. It's all exactly the opposite of what we need. What we need is to throw a better party, have more fun, have better music, have have and 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 do things together. That's this is how you organize people. You know, you got to have events and and of course, you know, as a as a you know storyteller, performer, you know, singer, you, as you say, my thing is popular education. But it's it's uh, doing it in a in a fun way. You know, you, you hear a song and and before you know it, you've you've learned something, but you didn't. Uh, it, it, but it was painless. You know, and you had fun while while learning something. You know, that's the that's the power of of uh, music and other forms of the arts. You know, I mean, a good speech can be fun too, but you know, it can often get a bit boring. And, and it's you know nice to get your education and your <laughs> in in other forms as well. So Z Manny, who uh, frequently comments and writes, says, what is it that we want and need from our culture and media in a society? What would that look like in a healthy society? Thinking of its true function helps us to think how to fix this process. And I think that's an incredibly insightful comment and series of questions. It's very important. It's also the subject of my latest essay, which is um, the, the social engineering and paralysis of the U.S. left. And the um, the social engineering aspect of what the media is doing, I mean, which is so fascinating. And of course, this is all stuff that we might have learned from Noam Chomsky, and he probably got it from somewhere else. But but the, uh, you know, manufacturing consent, if people haven't read that classic but uh, the, um, the the phenomenon is one of the things that's so fascinating about it is that you can be an earnest, well-meaning, uh, usually young reporter and, and do your best at covering the stories that you get to cover and do a, a, your best at doing a good job at it. Uh, and you can still be playing uh, a game uh, set out by the powers that be to polarize society all at the same time. And this is the brilliance of the polarizers. And and I think a good example of this is currently and has been for 40 years, uh, National Public Radio, uh, PBS. And, and I can tell you stories about how they've been doing this for 40 years, uh, but, but just in terms of like my l lifetime which is actually about 40 years of, of listening uh, to them, you know, uh, the, what they do is, is, is systematic. And it is a systematic playing down or almost completely ignoring class conflict in society or the labor movement or the history of the labor movement um, and playing up uh, racial and gender and sexual orientation, uh, you know, and which all of which are forms of a division and forms of oppression and exploitation that are profoundly important to be doing these stories on, which is part of the brilliance of the way they polarize people, because they can have really well-meaning and actually competent reporters doing important stories about police brutality and about all sorts of different aspects of how race, gender, and sexual orientation affect people's lives and are so important to be reporting on. But while they, through no fault of their own, are totally ignoring class and capitalism and imperialism, 
then you know they're in, they're totally avoiding the biggest elephants in the living room there is no matter you know if we were talking about numbers here if we're talking about numbers there is no division in society that even comes close to the class divide 1% of this population of this country owns more than half the wealth there is no way you can take any other demographic difference between people and say that there is anything close to this kind of divide class we are a capitalist society and class is at the very heart of the division in this society and as long as that is not a central central to media coverage then they are doing social engineering they are ignoring the elephant in the living room and trying to pretend that it's not there and trying to pretend that this is a society based on racial division which it is race has been used as a divisive tool and as a form of exploitation massive profit for centuries in this society but this is a capitalist society using race as a form of division and using particular racialized groups as a form of super exploited exploitation and profit but it is a capitalist society fundamentally and and this class divide is so fundamental and they're going to ignore it that's going to have a massive impact and that is going to cause so many people to leave the ranks not just white people but so many others to leave the ranks of the democratic party and join the republican party which is of course like jumping from the fire into the frying pan or vice versa it doesn't you know whichever but it's um but th this is what's happening for sure and it's because they're denying and ignoring the elephant in the living room which is the class divide which is just constantly getting worse and everybody can see it i mean it's obvious you know you look around this city look around your city it's just people living on the streets people living in vehicles it is just more like 1929 than ever Folks, you're listening to Redneck Gone Green. I'm your host, David Cobb. We're speaking to David Rovix, singer, songwriter, theorist, strategist, uh, all around good human being, uh, trying to uh, help us find a way to build the cooperative, loving, peaceful society. I want to ask you to please like, share, and subscribe to this channel to help us grow our community. We know that the corporate algorithms are used to suppress us, but we're still finding and building a community. I'm very happy to tell you we're up to 4,000 people and growing on Substack. Uh, if you haven't joined our YouTube channel, please do that. Or if it's just too censored over at YouTube for you, uh, go over to Rumble. We're there too. Uh, we're gonna get, we're gonna get on as many platforms as we can, David Robix, because we think that ordinary folks need to come together and strategize uh, and have these kinds of conversations. And I, I do want to underscore to me the the powerful observation that there is still a consensus between Republicans and Democrats on capitalism as the way to organize the political economy and imperialism as the way to conduct U.S. foreign policy. There is absolutely a difference between Democrats and Republicans uh, on issues of bodily integrity uh, and uh, uh, issues of race and gender. There are differences, and those differences matter. And it's equally true that there is a 100% consensus on capitalism, imperialism. So to me, the challenge is, how do we do a true intersectional approach that says we're going to confront the reality of white supremacy, heteropatriarchy, settler colonialism, and capitalism as all power over dominator systems and find our way to it? It's why I always 
remind people, you know, I occupy a male body. I spent my, you know, I, I, I've had this body my whole life. I have been profoundly privileged uh, by the incredible uh, toxic uh, way that gender is done in this country. And I still remember the first time I read Understanding Patriarchy by Bell Hooks. And her first sentence is, patriarchy is the most damaging institution in the planet, uh, uh, in the United States today, and it is harming men. And it blew my fucking mind because like I had always understood, you know, patriarchy to be a very uh, uh, specific thing, which it is, but there is a way to understand that patriarchy actually demands, for, yeah, it privileges a male, but at the same time, it comes at a heavy toll, my humanity. Like I have to suppress my own emotions and my feelings. I like, it is an incredible, it's a bad deal. It looks like a good deal because you get power and you get privilege and you get all this stuff. But what you find out, just as Ken does in the Barbie movie, you find out what you actually have to pay for. Same thing is true with white supremacy, y'all. Like uh, at, uh, white supremacy is real. Uh, white uh, privilege is real. But I'll tell you, it comes at a very heavy toll. That's why we have to learn to have these conversations to go beyond uh, uh, what we're at and, uh, and, and lean into the liberatory framework that we need. I'm so sorry to say that we've lost David Robix again. So we are at the end of the hour. So we're going to call this show. I promise you we'll bring David Robix back and we'll have uh, a less convoluted conversation. I do want to thank you, the viewer, listener. Remember, uh, if you're listening to this podcast, forward it along. If you're watching us uh, on YouTube, forward it along. Subscribe to us on YouTube. Subscribe to us on Rumble. Go to our Substack. Remember, we're getting larger, stronger, and better organized every week. And we want you to join us to be part of the peaceful, loving, just, democratic world that we so richly uh, deserves and so desperately need. Peace.